This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Today we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Adam Dean and colleagues entitled Outcomes Six Months After 100% or 70% of Enteral Calorie Requirements During Critical Illness, Target, a Randomized Controlled Trial. I'm joined today by the lead author of the study, Dr. Adam Dean, an intensive care specialist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia. Welcome, Dr. Dean. Uh, Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you and thanks for taking the time to uh, speak to me. Well, we're glad to have you. But before we start into the study, I wanted to discuss the concept of early enteral nutrition in critically ill patients. It seems like there's a lot of evidence that demonstrates that routine ICU care is rife with caloric deficits. Although prior studies have been conflicting in whether or not those deficits might be harmful to patients, what are the supposed harms of reduced caloric intake? Well, I guess from a mechanistic viewpoint, Mike, it's thought that caloric deficits lead to exacerbation of muscle wasting and muscle weakness and can increase the risk of infections. And this can sort of lead to downstream effects such as a prolonged duration of mechanical ventilation, prolonged duration of ICU and hospital admission, and then uh, a reduction in the capacity to participate in rehabilitation, both uh, in ICU, in the hospital, and uh, then post-hospital. And all these factors together may have some effect on mortality. But against that, I guess, is that there may be some harm from full feeding as well, and that uh, it has been uh, hypothesised that caloric deprivation, which is a, really an evolutionary response uh, as part of our fight or flight mechanisms, that in such a setting that the process of autophagy or the process of self-eating the, where cells clear dysfunctional components, and that that is actually suppressed by energy itself, so that um, providing nutrient during periods of high stress might actually be harmful itself. So there are, are both two sort of strongly held uh, positions and there's a lot of belief in both of those positions from various clinicians and researchers. And we were just keen to understand this area a little bit more within a randomized control trial. Well, speaking of clinical trials, you participated in the ANZIX clinical trials group study, the TARGET study, which was a multicenter RCT of about 4,000 patients that got energy-dense versus routine enteral nutrition. Now, prior to this study, the ARDSNET EDEN trial compared trophic feeds versus full feeds, and the 2015 PERMIT trial compared restricted versus standard feeding. Both these studies were large and showed no difference in outcomes. Why was the target study necessary in the context of these two prior trials? So I guess uh, you make an excellent point with the EDEN trial, which was uh, uh, run out of North America, led by Dr. Rice, and PERMIT trial, which was uh, another international trial uh, led by Dr. Arabi. These were really important trials in the nutritional space because they did look at the issue of calories. But I guess while they were very large trials and very important trials, it should be emphasized that nutrition itself is a fairly ubiquitous intervention. And these trials, while very large, still only enrolled up to about a thousand patients in each trial. And we felt that given a ubiquitous therapy like all other therapies that are administered in ICU, such as oxygen and uh, fluids and so forth, it's very important to have a very uh, robust estimate of the effect across populations. 
And not only that, but we wanted to really do a trial where we were blinded to the intervention just because there is so much dogma surrounding nutrition itself. We felt that it's very important to do a large nutritional trial with the intervention blinded both to the study participants but also to the clinicians who are involved in caring for the patient. The other thing to mention is that both the Eden and PERMIT trial, I guess, hypothesized the alternative hypothesis to us in that uh, they were really comparing both trials the usual care which is uh, tends to be about 60 to 70 percent of calorie requirements that are administered during the acute phase of illness to even more reduced amounts so that perhaps that calorie uh, deprivation during that period was going to be beneficial as either part of sort of trophic feeding or or deliberate underfeeding uh, and I guess we took the alternative viewpoint that perhaps it was we were comparing usual care versus uh, which was 60 to 70 percent versus trying to achieve 100 percent of the um, energy requirements in patients. So uh, for those two reasons, we thought this was a pretty important trial to uh, undertake. I agree. I think it's so common to have clinical underfeeding when people think that they're providing full nutrition. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you briefly summarize the original target trial? I guess the most important take-home point is that it was a blinded randomised controlled trial. We were able to get 46 ICUs across Australia and New Zealand to participate and uh, almost 4,000 patients were enrolled. And we used energy-dense formula, which had a little bit more fat and a little bit more carbohydrate in it, and which provided 1.5 kilocals per mil in the intervention feed compared to what was a more usual formula, which was 1.0 kilocals per mil. And these are really indistinguishable at the bedside when we uh, tested it beforehand. And because we were able to deliver one mil per kilo per hour and based on ideal body weight, that allowed us to have separation in energy delivery between the two groups where the usual care group got about 70% of calorie requirements throughout their first 28 days in ICU and the energy dense group got about 100% calorie requirements. And our primary outcome of the trial was 90-day all-cause mortality. I guess the interesting thing for us too is when we did this particular study is the phenomenal sort of recruitment rate that occurred um, so we started the trial in June 2016 and, and it was completed well ahead of schedule. So ahead of schedule and under budget, which is pretty rare for a, uh, a large trial. But our primary outcome of 90-day or cause mortality, there was no difference in the primary outcome with the 95% confidence intervals um, showing a true effect in the population of somewhere between a 6% reduction in mortality or a 16% increase. I was one of those that, although uh, recognised that uh, mortality is very important to do in the original trial, that uh, also trying to quantify outcomes subsequently, functional outcomes, was going to be a, a really unique opportunity in this particular trial. And so our sort of major secondary outcome is, is presented in this paper that uh, the Blue Journal's kindly uh, published. And uh, that was really looking at the outcomes at day 180 or six months after ICU admission. And your study found no difference between those two groups? That's correct. There was no difference in the primary outcome of the original trial. So um, yeah, uh, like I said, the point estimate um, uh, showed no difference and the 95% confidence at all uh, suggested uh, the true effect lay somewhere between a 6% reduction in mortality or a 16% increase based on the, the sample of, of 3,987 patients that were included. You know, one thing that I found interesting about the target trial is that the design allowed for equivalent protein delivery in both arms, and that's similar to the 2015 PERMIT trial. Now, there's some emerging evidence that 
suggests that protein delivery might be a key component in ICU nutrition. So how do you weigh the importance of protein versus calories in ICU nutrition? We had uh, a lot of discussions before starting this particular trial about whether we should focus on calories or protein or energy or protein. And we had to select one, but we thought it was very important that whatever we didn't select was controlled between the two groups. And for better or worse, we chose calories in the, the initial trial. I guess with protein, there is plausible mechanisms why uh, increasing amounts of protein could be beneficial, but there's also fairly plausible mechanisms to suggest that increasing amounts of, of protein could be harmful. And there really is a, a, like you sort of say, there is this disconnect between what people recommend and, and what actually seems to have crept into the international guidelines and clinical practice where we prescribe a, a much lesser amount of protein than uh, is what goes into the international guidelines. I think this is a really key question in the future. Uh, Kate Fetterplace is a dietitian who uh, recently undertook a systematic review and meta-analysis, and she uh, looked at trials where the protein dose was achieved in the trial that was in the within the recommended by international guidelines, so at least 1.2 uh, grams per kilo per kilogram per day, uh, versus usual care, which seems to be somewhere about 0.8. And uh, she was only able to find five trials and uh, I guess all the trials had a considerable risk of bias with only one blinded trial. Again, showing that in nutritional ICU trials, we really tried, do need to do blinded trials. And there was sort of less than 450 patients that were randomised. This sort of highlights that we do need robust data about the protein dose. And uh, I guess that's been led particularly in North America um, Dr. Stapleton's doing a trial on this and uh, Dr. Hayland as well is doing a large trial. And we've also done a small pilot to see if we can actually blind the intervention. But it does need to be an area that we do a lot of research in in the future. But I guess if I was uh, advising clinicians at the bedside, I'd say I wouldn't really change practice at the moment. I know there's a lot of hype about protein, but um, I think to continue doing what you're doing at the moment might be actually the best thing for patients and uh, until we have further data to say that uh, increased protein doses are better for patients. Now that's good advice. You know, one aspect that I was particularly interested in when I read the long-term outcomes of the target study was that your group chose to assess specific subgroups of patients based on their baseline characteristics. What was the rationale for this approach? A great part of uh, whenever you conduct trials is it does teach you a little bit of humility. And uh, I guess as part of this, I guess I found that I, I had uh, my beliefs in nutrition were, were a little bit wrong. I actually believed that energy delivery was likely to help people. And as a group, we thought that it would be very important to try and understand that even if we didn't show a difference in the mortality data. And we felt that if nutrition was going to have a beneficial effect or calorie delivery was going to have a beneficial effect that wasn't observed within mortality data, that it may assist individual patients return to their baseline level of functioning. And we thought that this may only be a modest benefit because of the short period of time that patients are in ICU, but it would be a benefit nonetheless to both patients, their families and the community. And while we were designing uh, the aspects of this, uh, we were fortunate that uh, Professor Jack Washington came out from Michigan and spent a sabbatical in Australia and um, helped us as a group work on the concept that perhaps a single outcome wasn't going to detect benefit or harm of the calorie delivery. And although we would still have to have one major outcome, which in this particular paper was health-related quality of life assessed by the EQ5D 5L visual analog scale, 
perhaps we could choose a number of different outcomes that were adjusted to individual groups of patients. Now, we can't individualise the whole trial, otherwise we would just end up with N equals 1 throughout. So we tried to bin or categorise patients. And look, this could potentially have its own issues, the outcomes and so forth we selected were potentially affected by our own values and our own biases. But I guess when we sat down and, and, and chatted it through this as a group, you know, we felt that uh, if you're an employed person who comes in with septic shock, many of us felt that uh, our family finances would be under considerable pressure if we hadn't returned to work by day 180. And that would impact not only the family, but it would have effects on the community with the reduction in taxes and so forth. So we felt that this was sort of an outcome in this particular group that was important to patients, could be important to the community as well, and is potentially modifiable by what we do in the ICU and particularly in nutrition. And so that's why we particularly looked at that group. Similarly, I guess, we were particularly interested in the older person who may have been on a uh, trajectory of decline, you know, potentially with a bit of undiagnosed sarcopenia. And if that patient comes in with an acute illness, say with septic shock and so forth, uh, not only did we want that patient to survive, but also uh, to be able to return to an independent quality of life because there is a huge cost to the community if we uh, were unable to get that individual patient back to uh, uh, independent health living and, uh, and and instead they were discharged to a long-term health care facility. So really in, in that sort of second group as well, we really wanted to know if, if calorie delivery uh, early on has a beneficial effect and we thought that those two groups were potentially the, the two groups that could have benefited the most. So we took, a, a, I guess, a different approach to what has been traditionally done. And while there is great enthusiasm and uh, and calls for core outcome sets, particularly in uh, post-ICU trials, and, and I think this is really important for, for informing our work, uh, I'm not sure we actually know what we should be measuring at the moment. We've provided uh, one alternative approach. I'd really encourage sort of other researchers and clinicians and and particularly patients who've recovered from critical illness is, is you know, really to, to debate what we should be measuring and, and how we should be measuring it. And I think this is an area that really needs a, a great deal of innovation as well as a pretty exciting time to, uh, to research. It's a great point. Raises an important question about how much subgroup analysis we should plan for when we're designing our RCTs. Your group, as you mentioned, had used the EQ5D5L as the main outcome. What other metrics did you and your group use uh, to assess function in these patients? Yeah, so the EQ5D5L was, uh, we felt that we could do the visual analog scale and, and the whole entire survey in all patients and that was uh, all participants at uh, day 180 and that was, so therefore that was our major outcome. And then uh, we looked at smaller subgroups. So those that were in the labor force beforehand, we tried to quantify return to work and how um, successful those people were at returning to work uh, using a system that the Australian Bureau of Statistics use to measure labour force and, and, and how patients are participate. And then uh, the other groups that we were particularly interested in were those that were over 65 and were living independently. And in that group, we wanted to try and quantify how they were remained active or participated in their community. We really had to try and borrow from gerontology literature and also try to use some 
some sort of tool that was relevant to our region because uh, a lot of the great work that's been done in this area is uh, has been done in North America and a lot of the outcomes assessed seem to be very weighted towards things that would be important to older people in North America and we were fortunate that we were able to find a validated tool that had been used in our own region which is uh, called the Adelaide Activities Profile but really that tries to quantify the activity and participation and so forth of an older person who is living independently. So then for the uh, other groups, we chose to use the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule. And I guess that was perhaps a less targeted approach, but we had some challenges. These were smaller groups that answered this particular survey question. And that's why this wasn't the most uh, perfect attempt to try and understand the effects in particular subgroups, but uh, we felt it was a reasonable first step to undertake. You know, one thing that I've always been impressed with is that it's easy to ask for long-term outcomes, but in practice, it's fairly challenging to do. And the ANZICS group had a very low loss to follow up in the study. So what strategies did your group employ to engage these patients to participate six months after the fact? Yeah, in Australia and New Zealand, like, the most important thing is that uh, we have an amazing group of research coordinators who are, work at each site and are very heavily invested in the Australian New Zealand uh, Clinical Trials Group and at each particular site had developed their own approaches to try and retain participants and ensure excellent communication and then were really persistent at trying to get this follow-up to occur. So really they were the people that made this all happen. And then the other person that was unbelievably uh, involved was we had this uh, incredible project manager, Lorraine Little, who was a fantastic point of call for the, all the research coordinators and kept the enthusiasm for the trial throughout the whole entire process. And then the other thing uh, that was also uh, had considerable impact was the, the leadership of the chairs of the particular trial. So uh, Marianne Chapman and Sandy Peake, who uh, continually reiterated how important this long-term outcome was uh, and allocated resources and continually promoted this as the aspect that was vital to the running of the trial. So uh, I think all of these three things really added to our ability to collect this data. Yeah, a good study coordinator makes all the difference, especially when you're talking about long-term outcomes. One aspect of your study was that a lot of the study patients entered into critical illness well-nourished. Now that seems comparable to the American population with respect to overweight or obese patients. But how should clinicians apply the findings of the target trial to patients who are already malnourished when they enter the ICU? Uh, I guess very circumspect, uh, Mike, would be my initial thoughts. It is probably also worth emphasizing that we were only able to use a relatively blunt tool in the, in the body mass index, which uh, I guess gives us an idea of whether a patient is uh, overweight. And that was what the mean population was in our trial, which actually represents what uh, Australian New Zealand communities are. But it perhaps doesn't give us a, a nuanced view of uh, if there were periods of inadequate or poor nutrition or, or if the, the patient uh, was sarcopenic to begin with. But nonetheless, I, I think what we could say is that we did study a patient population that was relatively overweight. How would this data inform you if I was looking after an underweight patient or one that was grossly malnourished? Well, I guess it doesn't prove in that setting that 100% of uh, calorie delivery is, is safe in that particular group. Uh, I'm 
always uh, conscious that people adapt to their physiological environment and, and those that maybe have had prolonged periods of, of malnutrition beforehand, that maybe they have adapted to the calorie restriction. I guess in my clinical practice, I'm always hesitant about introducing an abrupt change to physiology during periods of stress. And I'm very cautious in that setting. So I'm not sure that our trial says that it's safe to give those patients 100% calorie delivery. And I'd potentially favor a more cautious approach. I think that's great advice. It also is a very good point that just being overweight or obese doesn't necessarily mean that you're well nourished. So the target trial is like a lot of RCTs in that it's designed to demonstrate superiority, but the absence of superiority is different than equivalence. So how should I interpret this trial? Is a 70% caloric requirement as good as 100%? Yeah, so that, that is an excellent point. We haven't done an equivalence trial. Uh, I guess uh, what we can say, particularly after the day 180 outcome data that's presented in this paper, is that there doesn't seem to be any evidence that delivery of 100% of calories during the first 28 days of ICU improves any of the outcomes that we measured that we felt might be important to, to patients. So I guess in my clinical practice, how it's informed me is while uh, I would still over the first three to five days target 100% of our energy requirements, uh, I don't particularly sweat it if uh, if we don't uh, achieve these targets and we are uh, only achieving 70% at the end of the first or second week, uh, I still think that that will not affect patient outcomes. And so I'd be happy with that. That sounds like a pretty good takeaway. I wanted to get into a little bit more speculation here. One aspect of the target trial, as well as the Eden and permit trials, is that they all initiated feeding rather early, which you know is in accordance with current guidelines. But we still don't really have a study that looks at how long of a delay is acceptable. You know, some intensivists favor early feeding. Uh, some other intensivists believe in delaying until some magic period has occurred, whether that's 24 hours or when vasopressor dose is decreased or perhaps just next morning when things calm down. And then there's also some people who just delay feeding out of absent-mindedness. So what are your thoughts about when to start nutrition and how much? Uh, like you say, there isn't any... Uh randomized controlled data out there. And I guess part of the issue has been up until now, it would have been very difficult to get past an ethics committee uh, and your colleagues to say that you did want a prolonged period of fasting before starting any nutrition. I guess within my own clinical practice, I guess I'm quite terrible at predicting the future and I'm never quite certain how long a patient will remain in the ICU. And I also think that there's with any large team that you're working with in the ICU, it's pretty important that you have a uniformity of approach or if you're individualising care that that's clearly articulated to the rest of the team and you get some buy-in. So I guess in my practice, I still like to commence enteral nutrition the morning ward round after the patient's been admitted. And even if that's just trophic feeding for the patient who's on larger doses of vasopressors, while I think that that's unlikely to make a much of a difference for a patient who's admitted for sort of three to five days, I think that the odd patient that we have that stays in for sort of 30 to 60 days, it does allow, mean that uh, we try to attenuate the caloric deficit that uh, will uh, undoubtedly occur throughout their stay. And this may have some uh, effects, but again, this wasn't looked at in our particular trial. I also think one of the advantages of having a set time rather than a clinician gestalt approach is that it does add some structure to the ward round and um, 
So I believe that having a dedicated time to start adds some structure to the ward round and that this uh, attention to detail is important for the rest of the team because it suggests that uh, if the consultant checks every day that uh, DVT prophylaxis is charted on every patient, that the morning after the ward round, the consultant checks uh, whether enteral nutrition has been commenced um, and then after several days is checking that we are achieving our caloric needs and also that every day that they're checking the team knows what the physiotherapy plan is and what the plan is for mobilisation. While each of those may not have an individual effect to reduce mortality, I think in totality that sort of team approach and attention to detail uh, led by the consultant who's leading the ward round um, has a very real chance of, of impacting patient care. I think the team approach and protocolizing care are excellent points. We're running out of time here, so I wanted to bring up one last question here, which is that you raised that there are a lot of unanswered questions in enteral nutrition in the ICU. So what do you think we should be studying next? Uh, so I guess within the ANZIC clinical trial group, there is an interest in how we are feeding patients after the ICU and to see actually if this uh, could be influenced by uh, clinicians within the ICU. And Emma Ridley from the Alfred and uh, ANZIC RC is, is leading this work. We're also, uh, we've done a small pilot to see if it was feasible to blind us to protein delivery and uh, and the results of that will be uh, analysed and discussed at great detail within our group to see if uh, it warrants further investigation in, in a larger trial. And I guess the other area that I think, although I'm not particularly doing research in it, is um, is I think that we do need to develop a, a biomarker at the bedside uh, or some sort of marker at the bedside which will allow us to have an enrichment strategy to um, really do further research in nutrition trials where we have an enriched population that are most likely to benefit. Well, that would be very exciting. We're out of time, so this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. So thank you so much, Dr. Dean, for joining me in a great discussion of enteral nutrition in the ICU, as well as the importance of conducting long-term outcomes in research. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike, and thanks very much for uh, taking the time to uh, speak to us, and, and thank you very much for the to the Blue Journal for publishing uh, our data. Well, we're extremely grateful for the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group for constantly asking and answering the important questions in critical care. This is Michael Lansma for the American Thoracic Society. Thank you.